Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 96, My Thoughts on the Bill Nye-Ken Ham Debate. Before we get started, I'd like to thank the following people for following the show on Twitter, Irreverent Skeptics, Brainstorm Podcast, Dan Fink, Let's Be Frank, The Great Wade Cardall, Albert Jack, Miss Claire, and George Willoughby. I always feel like I'm taking attendance when I do that. Uh, but I guess, hey, you know, giving you guys a shout out is the least I can do uh, in return for showing your support. While we're on the subject of Twitter, I'd like to also thank Crocoduck. Been a long time since I mentioned Crocoduck. Love saying that. Um, well, I'd like to thank him for retweeting a tweet I sent out to renowned skeptic Michael Shermer. I'm a fan of um, Michael Shermer, and I was just letting him know that I had recently mentioned him in an episode. And Crocoduck was nice enough to uh, give that a retweet, so thank you. Also, I'd like to give a shout-out to Twisted Erotica, tantalizing handle, uh, for taking the time to review the show on iTunes. And I'd like to read that review now. And uh, they gave me five stars, by the way, so all right. Phil is great to listen to, and I love how he keeps me up to date with current events. My only complaint is, I want more, exclamation point. <laughs> Longer episodes, please. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that's very humbling, and I appreciate it. You know, I always struggle to figure out how long to make the shows. Sometimes I feel like the shorter ones are maybe punchier or more concise, Whereas the longer ones, I'm afraid maybe sometimes I might be boring you guys or um, waxing philosophical too much. But it's good to know that uh, someone wants to hear more. All right. I guess what I'll do is I'll just keep on keeping on and uh, pretty much let the subject matter determine the length of the episode. If it's a few quick news stories... You know, maybe the show will remain somewhere in between 11 to 15 minutes long. But if it's a subject I feel that merits really digging down deep into and thoroughly investigating, um, maybe the show will be a half an hour to a little under an hour like it is on some occasions. And today could be one of those episodes because um, I had a lot of thoughts on the Ken... Ham Bill Nye debate, and I took copious notes, and I have so many scattered notes that organizing them into a script for the show would probably cause me to put the, this episode off another week. So, if you're in the mood to be patient with me, I think what I'll do is um, work without a net once again today, no script, and just review my notes as we go and uh, give my thoughts. And one more shout out before we start. I want to thank a listener and friend of the show, John Haas, for recently sharing an essay he had written with me. It was very intelligently written and well-researched. And I don't want to betray his trust by divulging too much about it because I think he might be kind of private about who he shares it with. But it Basically, just generally speaking, touched on the contradictory nature 
of the concepts of a just God and a merciful God. And he gave a lot of excellent examples of places in the Old Testament where God appears neither just nor merciful. And one uh, idea we both share is that the story of the fall in the garden is rather unjust. And I touched on that recently when I described the idea of original sin as being vulgar. Um, the idea of punishing all of mankind for the transgression of two individuals seems to be quite an iniquitous notion indeed, within the context of the myth, of course, not saying I actually believe those events took place. Uh, who knows, maybe sometime down the road with John's permission, I might give my thoughts on some of the things he touched on uh, some of the specifics. But for now, on to uh, today's episode. So before I get into the meat of the debate, I suppose I should talk about the fact that there's a bit of uh, disagreement or controversy among non-believers regarding whether or not Bill Nye should have debated Ken Ham at all. And I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, even Richard Dawkins himself thought it was a uh, bad idea. I think the thinking is that since young Earth creationists are so irrational, since their quote-unquote scientific views are so based on kind of wished thinking and um, superstitious belief in biblical text, that that you're not going to change them by arguing with them or trying to reason with them and you may even risk lending them a sense of credibility by debating them or giving them a soapbox to uh, preach from but i'm of the school of thought that we should debate people like ken ham we may not be able to change the hearts and minds of his followers um but we can at least shine a, a light of reason on their distorted beliefs and we might be able to enlighten or win over those reasonable people that might be sitting on the fence. And a good point that others have made is that not even all Christians believe in this young earth stuff. I mean, I could probably do a whole nother show on the kind of cognitive dissidence that must exist for someone to be able to believe in certain parts of the Bible as literal truth but at the same time embrace um, a modern and enlightened scientific worldview where maybe someone can claim to believe in the parting of the Red Sea or the resurrection, um, but they also believe that the earth is millions of years old and that the Genesis account is meant to be taken figuratively. But I guess at least such people are somewhat reasonable, I, I believe. And if you're a believer listening, hopefully I'm not being too insulting. Um, but I, I would actually, at least I would hope, that young earth creationists are actually in the minority am among uh, believers. And that most people do embrace uh, a more mainstream view of evolution and geology and things like that. But surprisingly, among the Christians that don't agree with Ken Ham, or that think that he's a little wacky, um, is Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson is controversial in his own right. And he's been known to say some outrageous things. 
But in this case, he actually comes down on the side of established science for the most part. And I'd actually like to play a clip for you now. Let's face it, there was a bishop in the Middle Ages there, uh, 1800 something, uh, who added up the dates listed uh, in Genesis, and he came up with a world that had been around for 6,000 years. There ain't no way that's possible. You know, anybody that's in the oil business knows that he's drilling down. You drill down 2,000, uh, excuse me, two miles, three miles, four miles underground. You're coming into all these layers that were laid down by the dinosaurs. And we have skeletons of dinosaurs that go back about uh, 65 million years. And to say that it all came about in 6,000 years is just nonsense. And I think the time we, we come off of that stuff and say this isn't possible. And, but, I mean, so there was a big bang. So <clears throat> that doesn't mean it came spontaneously. Nobody knows what caused the big bang, but I say God did it. God's in charge of all this. God's in control, and um, he is the author of all life. But uh, we've got to be realistic that the dating of Bishop Usher just doesn't comport with anything that is found in science. And, you know, you, you can't just totally deny um, the geological formations that are out there, the rock formations and all the things that go all over the world, especially the bones. And we, we have found uh, a uh, Pterosaurus Rex out there in the in Oregon or someplace, I mean, a full skeleton. And that baby was laid down about 65 million years ago. So I mean, let's let's be real. Let, let's not be. Uh, let's not make a joke of ourselves. <clears throat> but I don't believe in so-called evolution, and it is currently presented as as non-theistic. I believe that God started it all, and He's in charge of all of it. But the fact that you have uh, progressive evolution under His uh, control. That doesn't hurt my, my faith at all. But uh, I, this thing, you know, we just can't be playing this usher. Bishop Usher, God bless him, rest his soul in peace. He was just off. That creepy music at the end was actually part of the clip. Um, it came originally from Right Wing Watch. Okay. So there was Pat Robertson sounding uh, moderately rational. He did get a couple of things wrong. I believe um, Usher actually lived, not the R&B guy, but the uh, Archbishop, uh, actually lived in the 1600s, not the 1800s. Pat Robertson uh, characterized the 1800s as the Middle Ages. Uh, but hey, at least he's kind of on our side on this one. And I believe he pronounced Tyrannosaurus Rex Pterosaurus Rex, which in a weird way sounds kind of cooler. Uh, but anyway, but it's good that Pat Robertson brought up the Archbishop Usher, because as Pat Robertson just mentioned, he came up with um, an age for the Earth that young Earth creationists still use, and that's that roughly 6,000-year range. And the way that Usher got that, and I believe he's not the only theologian to have done this, but he took the genealogies found in Genesis. You know, that very boring part of Genesis where so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. Uh, and you have all the antediluvians, uh, meaning before the flood. You know, these people 
people with uh, incredible um, lifespans, some of them living up to 800 and 900 years old. So he basically tried to do number crunching, adding up the lifespans of all those individuals to get some kind of general age for the Earth. And I think there were some technical uh, snags because not all of the Jewish versions of the Torah give the same amount of time in between creation and the flood. So if you ever wondered where do people like Ken Ham uh, get this wacky young age for the Earth, well, there you have it. So the first thing that popped out at me when watching the debate is that Ken Ham creates this divide between what he calls observational science versus historical science. And I think basically, to put simply, this is kind of his workaround. So he can simultaneously be seen to embrace modern science while still holding on to his kind of primitive uh, creationist beliefs uh, or his biblical literalism. And the way he does this is he says that observational science refers to how we make medicines and build iPhones or jet airplanes or whatever it is. Um, what we can observe in the present and uh, gain information about and then utilize that. That's uh, all observational science. But the study of the distant past, trying to know truth about the world by studying the what happened in the distant past, he says that's historical science and that's something quite different in his opinion. And he says that we can't use observational science to know things like the age of the earth or the length of geological epochs or things like that, the age of ancient trees by counting their rings and, and so on. Um, so observational science in the present can be used to send satellites into space and um, build MRI machines and manufacture medicines, but it can't be used to know the truth about the past. And in order to know the truth about the past, you guessed it, we have to turn to the Bible, according to Ken Ham. And uh, again and again in the um, debate, you'll hear him say, well, the Bible tells us. So according to him, you can't use observational science to know about the past, but you can use a man-made religious text, which, as I've explained many times before on the show, often contradicts itself. Um, very strange indeed. And there's times, well, I think other people have characterized Ken Ham as kind of a smooth debater. When he kind of goes on about historical versus observational science, and he starts at times to um, throw about a lot of uh, professional or scientific-sounding lingo, he almost sounds credible at times. But then, 
you know, he'll have these funny kind of diagrams in the background. or Then he'll go from there to falling back on the Bible. You know, so he'll be going on using all this scientific jargon and whatnot. Then all of a sudden, he starts talking about original sin and how sin and death exist because of man's fall in the garden and um, how before the fall, animals uh, didn't eat meat, uh, including carnivorous animals like uh, lions. And I don't know if it's Ken Ham's Creationist Museum, um, but I know one of them, it probably is his, has a, uh, I think Michael Shermer pointed this out, has a display depicting a baby velociraptor aboard the ark. And when someone brings up the fact that this thing has talons and um, a mouthful of uh, razor-sharp teeth, they say, oh, that's for cracking open coconuts or something like that. And he actually tried to use that type of argument against Bill Nye. Bill Nye was talking about why would a lion, a carnivore, have a mouthful of... Um, these fierce teeth if it used to be um, an herbivore or whatever. And Ken Ham said that, well, sometimes animals uh, have pointy teeth and it doesn't mean that they're carnivores. And so he tries to use the panda bear or bears in general as an example. Well, I would say regular bears, although... They're kind of, uh, I believe they're omnivorous. They might eat berries and forage for things. But they also uh, will eat fish or uh, things of that nature. Um, So they are at least partly hunters. And the panda bear, although it probably utilizes its teeth to uh, strip bamboo, it probably inherited those teeth from carnivorous or at least semi-carnivorous ancestors. But the concept of the flood plays a big part in Ken Ham's worldview. And he believes literally in the book of Genesis in general, but in concluding the story of the ark, of the flood. And he believes that Noah and his family were real people. They really built an ark. They really took two of every animal, got them on the ark. Ken Ham tries to somewhat get around that by saying it was two of every kind of animal, not two of every animal, so there may have been two uh, great cats, two, you know, kind of two representatives of general groups of animals. And one thing I wish someone brought up, and uh, I know that Bill Nye's not a theologian, but I wish someone would bring up to this guy the fact that we have versions of the flood myth that predate Judaism and Christianity. We have the Sumerian Epic of Gilgamesh, which contains um, a tree of life, uh, a serpent, um, the, the flood narrative, of course. I wish someone would also bring up um, that the Old Testament, like the New Testament times, contain, contains contradictions, and that there's two accounts of creation, there's two accounts of the flood narrative, both which um, have contradictory accounts of how many animals were on the ark. So if this was a 
if, if this is a divinely inspired text, if this is to be taken literally, why does it contradict itself? Uh, it would have been great if Bill Nye could have touched on that, because the foundation of Bill Nye, of uh, Ken Ham's whole worldview is literal belief in the book of Genesis. I just wish someone, it would be great if debating him would bring up the faulty nature of the text itself or the fact that it borrows from earlier polytheistic traditions. One really good point I thought Bill Nye made, and I believe he made it a couple of times, and that there's a problem with literally believing in the flood narrative, that if you believed all these animals existed at the same time, um, dinosaurs, trilobites, zebras, lions, everything all at once, and they all got wiped out by a great flood. It does really make sense, even if you wanted to argue about the length of certain geological epochs, um, we can still see kind of frozen in time, you know, in the sediment, and we can see that different animals existed at different times. You can see simple animals like trilobites, etc. Um, then you know you can see amphibians, reptiles, the dinosaurs, um, eventually mammals. And Bill Nye brought up the point that if all these animals lived at the same time, drowned to death at the same time, wouldn't they kind of be all mixed up? Wouldn't you find? trilobites, T-Rexes, uh, zebras, elephants, all mixed up together. Um, you wouldn't see the stratification. Certain um, types of creatures living at certain times. And another thing Bill Nye brought up was, uh, he talked a little bit of the science of when you take ice core samples you know you basically put a cylinder down in the down in the ancient ice and uh, you can get a sample of different layers and he talks about how each layer is measured by a kind of summer winter cycle and we know that from modern observational science you can see how much time it takes to create a layer and he was talking about how some of these layers that you can observe through core samples go back like 680,000 years. And so Bill Nye was half-jokingly talking about how in order to make Ken Ham's math work out that the Earth is only 6,000 years old, you would have to have 170 winter-summer cycles per year. So you'd see like 170 winters and summers every year. Um, obviously ridiculous, and that's the point he was making. And he also pointed out how we can look at tree rings. You know, we can observe them today and see how long, you know, basically it takes for one ring to appear. And there we know of trees that go back, that are living right now, that go back in between um, 6,000 to 9,000 years. Um, trees that are older than Ken Ham believes the world is uh, as a whole. And another good point Bill Nye brings up is that if all these animals existed at the same time, um, you would have had to have had all the millions of species that exist now, basically, you know, coming into being and migrating to their respective continents, um, 
within a, a mere 6,000 years. And say, to get a kangaroo from the Middle East, where I imagine Ken Ham believes the uh, Genesis story happened, you would need some kind of land bridge to get the kangaroo from the Middle East to Australia. And, and land bridges, which no one can find, by the way, but young Earth creationists will sometimes say must have existed because they have to try to force the um, the puzzle pieces together. But that brings up a good point, too. Um, if you believe the world is only 6,000 years old, when did the whole Pangea breaking apart into separate continents take place? And what about after the flood? Did Noah deliver all the uh, surviving animals to the different continents? Yeah. Uh, asinine. Stuff that shouldn't even have to be discussed. And one thing I noticed that Ken Ham would never answer, and I think Bill Nye asked him at least twice, basically, how do you explain all the hominid skulls? We have all these different hominid skulls. Australopithecus, um, Neanderthal. Grew up hearing it as Neanderthal, but apparently it's Neanderthal. Um, uh, all these different uh, early human-like primates, all these different hominids, uh, how do they fit into the picture? And if Darwinian evolution is wrong and everything was neatly created by God, why all these weird human-like apes um, that seem so closely related to us? How do they fit into God's picture? If you can hear a snoring in the background, that's actually my chihuahua. Uh... <laughs> I think it's been a while since she interrupted the podcast. But she makes weird grunting and snoring noises in her sleep, and she's curled up on the bed. But anyway, um, now I lost my train of thought. But that brought up another point. Even in one of his own diagrams or illustrations, uh, Ken Ham was showing members of the animal kingdom, and he showed a chimpanzee. And I was thinking to myself... If you take the Bible literally and you don't believe in the conventional theory of evolution, why would chimpanzees exist? Why would God bother making a creature that shares about 99% of our DNA, um, that looks like a bizarre parody of us? Um, and Ken Ham never addresses this because, of course, what can he say? And one thing that is interesting that uh, Ken Ham did kind of right out the gate was to lend his point of view um, some weight or credibility. Is he has these little, and it's funny, man, that creation museum is uh, a pretty fancy place. It's like this gigantic building. They have all these um, fancy uh, screens and monitors and presentations. And Ken Ham introduced kind of via satellite or maybe it was pre-recorded bits, I don't know, but uh, video footage of supposedly prominent scientists who happened to be young Earth creationists. And one of them was this older guy who, um, I, I guess, played a big part in designing uh, the MRI machine. And I think it's always jarring when we hear about people who are talented uh, 
scientists or whatnot, but are also young Earth creationists because we say, how can that be? Um, you know, there's someone like Francis Collins who I believe headed the Human Genome Project, and he was friends with the late Christopher Hitchens. I think he even played piano at um, Hitchens' um, memorial service. Um, but Francis Collins, uh, I believe, even though he's a devout Christian, he believes in uh, the mainstream theory of evolution. And he puts um, the age of the human race alone, of modern man, to at least uh, 100,000 years, um, far more than the 6,000 that Ken Ham tries to uh, give to the, um, the entire Earth. Interrupted once again. This time, I think it's a snowblower. Uh, well, I'm recording this. We're actually in the middle of yet another blizzard here in New England. So, okay. So here I am, right back again through the magic of editing. But I'm actually picking up from where I left off yesterday. Uh, I mentioned how we were having another harrowing um, snowstorm. I would call it a blizzard. It, it seemed like close to a, a foot of snow uh, here in the Northeast. So I had to cut my recording short and um, do some shoveling, and then I passed out. Not literally. I was just tired. Okay. But anyway, I, I don't know if I mentioned this yesterday while recording. I don't remember. But in order to try to add, but in order to try to lend his argument some credibility uh, or his worldview some credibility. Early in the debate, Ken Ham showed a few video clips of supposedly reputable or renowned scientists who are also young Earth creationists. And uh, one of them was uh, an, an older guy who had supposedly either invented or helped invent the uh, MRI machine. And I think there was also a... Um, microbiologist who has been published in a lot of uh, reputable science uh, magazines, etc. And I know, like me, you might be wondering, how can someone on the one hand be a learned, highly intelligent scientist and then also be a young earth creationist? I think maybe we can kind of understand more someone like uh, Francis Collins, who I think I mentioned earlier, who was a friend of Christopher Hitchens and who um, had the uh, Human Genome Project, I believe, where he's a Christian, but he also embraces mainstream science when it comes to uh, evolution and the geological age of the earth and, and things like that. But how can a learned scientist uh, believe that the earth is only 6,000 years old? And this had me scratching my head too, but I think the way it's got to work, other than the fact that there's got to be some uh, compartmentalization going on, I, I think... The best explanation is probably that just because you're learned in one field um, doesn't mean that you're learned in every other field. You could be a very gifted mechanical scientist and have the wherewithal to build um, or design something like an MRI machine, and yet that doesn't make you a theologian or a skilled philosopher. 
Um, you might have all this technical know-how in one field, but that doesn't mean that maybe that, that you're well-versed on world religion or uh, the history of biblical archaeology um, or geology, for that matter. So, I mean, you would think that if these people had a well-rounded education that they might also have enough knowledge about things like world history and uh, comparative religion or something like that, that that would prevent them from being young earth creationists, but maybe not, maybe not. So I think it's possible someone could be skilled in one scientific field, but then maybe they have like a third grader's worldview on religion. And uh, I know that probably, probably sounds insulting, but I don't mean it to be. But I'm saying that uh, for those of us that were raised religious, if you can remember back to maybe when you were in elementary school, and I know even though I'm a kind of naturally skeptical and philosophical person, and I think I started doubting early on, I know at least when I was a kid, I think there was a part of me that wanted to believe or that was afraid not to believe or that was still very superstitious, and basically accepted, uh, for a time at least, what I had been taught. So I was raised Catholic. I went to Sunday school. You know, when I was in third grade, I think I probably still had this idea that um, there's an angry God watching, you know, everything I did. I had to be careful about what I did. Uh, the story about the biblical plagues were real. Um, the story about the world created in seven days was real. Well, technically, God rested on the seventh day. Um, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, um, the healing of the lepers, all the rest of it. So I, I think it's possible that um, someone who was raised religious and who maybe never evolved beyond that kind of third-grade um, theological worldview, uh, but went on, you know, maybe they were gifted with their hands, gifted in, naturally in the mechanical sciences and things like that. You could end up with someone who um, has the skill to build an MRI machine, but still has a superstitious worldview when it comes to religion. And it makes me wonder if um, what would happen if you got if you sat one of those people down, um, showed them the contradictions in the Bible. And how logically that should show that you shouldn't take it literally. Um, show them how early um, Judaic beliefs um, seem to have arisen out of Mesopotamian polytheistic beliefs. I mean, we have earlier versions of the lot of a lot of the events that we find in Genesis in. Uh, and Mesopotamian belief, like we have the Epic of Gilgamesh with the Flood and the Tree of Life. Or maybe it's a magic plant in the Gilgamesh story. The man and woman that cover their nakedness. And the world created in seven days and all that. Um, and this kind of fingerprints, so to speak, all throughout the Old Testament that points to the idea that, that this monotheistic religion arose out of earlier Mesopotamian uh polytheism. So, uh, I mean, if you could sit these people down, show them the flawed nature of the text itself, show them how these 
beliefs that they embraced literally emerged out of earlier traditions. I wonder if they'd still adhere to this young earth stuff. They might. They might, because some people are just afraid, and uh, they kind of shield themselves by living in a bubble. They don't want to see the truth. Um, And I know it can be scary um, when you're raised religious, and you have this whole cosmology that's at the center of your worldview, the belief in a monotheistic creator. Uh, You have all this stuff you were taught to believe from an early age. The idea of someone pulling the carpet out from under you getting you to really think for yourself that there may not be a God, there may not be an afterlife. All this stuff that you were taught as a kid may just be another mythology, just another set of myths. And being forced to try to figure out the truth, the existential truth for yourself, that that can be uh, a pretty daunting proposition. So I, in a way, I... I can understand why people are afraid to kind of face that, to kind of look into the abyss. You know, um, but to call yourself a man of science and not do so, uh, it's very frustrating to me to see that. You know, in um, the Alice in Wonderland stories, uh, there's the anecdotes about going through the looking glass or down the rabbit hole. And that's how I feel whenever I listen to someone like Ken Ham, I feel like I've gone down the rabbit hole in reality and common sense has kind of been turned on its head. And you get the feeling that they are living in a bubble and they are trying to stretch and grasp at straws and uh, at times just deny reason to try to get their theological uh, worldview to um, endure and that's another thing it, it it is a theological worldview and ken ham how he combats that because you know uh, a lot of us especially on our side of the argument the, the skeptics the non-believers the atheists um even i would say probably a lot of religious people don't believe uh, in forcing their religion on others or maybe um non-christian religious folks um we all have a, a kind of fear of Christianity being brought into the classroom, especially under the guise of uh, science, you know, in the, in the form of intelligent design or um, creationism. And Ken Ham bases his whole quote-unquote scientific worldview on literal belief in the Bible, the Judeo-Christian Bible. Um, so he's basically saying that all of science is founded on the truth of a particular religion, his religion. And as Bill Nye brought up, but Ken Ham never responds to it, is what happens to all the non-Christians, you know? Or what happens to the Christians who aren't fundamentalists, who aren't young earth creationists? Um, Or now this is me speaking, you know, what happens to the Hindus, the Sikhs, um, the Buddhists, so on and so on. Um, you know, science is a big part of our life. If you're going to re-spin science as being founded on the Judeo-Christian Bible, um, down to the point that you try to scientifically explain um, suffering and death as the cost of original sin, I mean, you're going to be hoisting... Uh, forcing Christian belief 
on people of all different faiths, including people with no faith, in the guise of uh, science. And uh, Ken Ham never really explains um, how that's fair, but his weak sauce excuse for it, now I'm I'm borrowing the term weak sauce from the Young Turks, um, is he says that mainstream science mainstream historical science as he terms it is a religion unto itself and as i was saying yesterday he draws a distinction between observational science which he says is how we observe things in the present learn and draw conclusions about the world and then apply those in you know in in the sciences uh so according to him uh building a NASA space shuttle, developing medicines, MRI machines. This is all a result of observational science. But historical science, and mainstream science doesn't see this distinction, historical science, he says, uh, requires faith or speculation because we weren't there to watch the trees age. We weren't there to watch the different geological layers uh, form over time. Um, so he kind of implies that it takes faith to believe that the, you know, the earth is four and a half billion years old as opposed to just, uh, 6,000 in his view, when of course he's the one who's using faith to determine the age of the world. We're the ones using, or at least professional scientists, using established scientific techniques and methods such as using radioactive decay and things like that and examining uh, fossil layers and et cetera and um, the aging of certain elements to establish um, things like the age of the Earth. And to me, we are using observational science when we study the past or try to calculate things about the past. And like Bill Nye was saying, you know, we can watch a tree age. We can see how long it takes for a ring to appear in the center of a tree, or we can see how long it takes an, uh, you know, an ice layer to form. And then we can look at core samples. We can look at ancient trees, and um, we can make a reasonable scientific estimation about how far back certain things go. We're not relying on one man-made text out of many man-made religious texts that, like um, the rest of them, seems to be superstitious and self-contradictory. But anyway, um, I'll reel myself back in a bit because I think I went so far out on a tangent I lost track of what my point was. Oh yeah, my point was that to try to defend his weird brand of theological science... um, or theology-based science, Ken Ham tries to deflect and say that mainstream science, quote-unquote historical science, is also a religion. He calls it kind of a, a nature religion or a natural, uh, naturalistic religion. And he claims that, and this really got me kind of hot under the collar, and he says this two or three times in the debate, that traditional science borrows from the Christian worldview in the first place. And in a way, I thought maybe he was going to try to make a logical statement about how through the, through the ages, a lot of scientists um, 
have either been religious or maybe had religious patrons um, or something like that. But no, he says that believing that there are natural laws at work in the universe, believing that there's logic or harmony in the in the rules of the universe or something like that, that is a Christian view. And when scientists who kind of condemn literal belief do so, um, they're actually you know being hypocritical because they're using Christian ideas about um, logic and actual rules at work in the universe or something like that. And um, this is ridiculous because anyone who has a layman's knowledge of philosophy knows that well before Christianity, um, we had ideas about logic, ideas about the cosmos, even ideas about essentially atomic particles, um, or atoms at least, going all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And a lot of Christian philosophy and thought was based on the work of the uh, Platonic philosophers. So uh, th that's just such a weak argument from Ken Ham to me. You know, obviously we had people like um, Pythagoras, uh, Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, all these people before Christ. So this idea that seeing the universe or the cosmos as having natural principles or rules that are in play is somehow a Christian idea is, is asinine. Okay. Oh, and another thing while I'm talking about the scientists that... Um, Ken Ham kind of trotted out to back up his creationist um, viewpoint or lend it credibility. And one of them, one of the guys up on the monitor, uh, I wish I took note of his name, he said kind of an astounding and somewhat humorous thing. He said, even though young earth creationists are a very small minority uh, in the scientific community, it almost sounded like he was drawing a parallel to um, closeted gays, where he said that, there's a lot of scientists who are who are sympathetic to their young earth creationist viewpoint, but they're afraid to come out and speak because they might have to face repercussions from the eighth quote. No, this is in quotes of the atheist lobby. And I'm like, really? The atheist lobby? And usually we think of lobby, you know, you kind of think of dirty politics, even though uh, lobbying isn't necessarily illegal in politics, where you have people... Um, trying to kind of engage politicians in quid pro quo, you know, uh, throwing money around or whatever to get a desired uh, result out of politicians. And I'm like, is that really an atheist lobby? Is Richard Dawkins going to labs around the country with, with stacks of cash and try to bribe people into being atheists? Isn't it more likely that that the majority of people with a strong scientific education and a well-rounded education can probably see the man-made nature and the superstitious nature of religion and they choose to embrace a worldview that is based on science and reason. Isn't that most likely more the case than that there's some sinister atheist lobby at work. And I imagine a lot of scientists are probably like me, 
where even though th this is a show, as uh, the tagline says, for atheists, agnostics, and whoever, um, that if you're a regular listener, you know I kind of eschew labels. Um, I, I think when you label yourself, you kind of confine yourself um, and also can confine the way others see you, too, I think. Um, and I've talked since the early days of the podcast about the overlap between atheist and agnostic. Uh, and this is something that Penn Jillette used to talk about when he was um, kind of making the rounds with his book, God Know. Uh, God Know. Yeah, I believe that was the name of it. Where he would talk about how, you know, if you literally look at the etymologies of the etymology of the, the words atheist and agnostic, it would seem to imply that an atheist believes in no God and agnostic doesn't know if there's a God, you know, but, uh, and I think that's what a lot of people tend to demonize atheists. I think it's because they assume an atheist believes with 100% certainty that there is no God, but I would argue it's more the case that, um, there is a kind of overlap between atheist and agnostic and that even the, the staunchest atheist, and, and I've heard Richard Dawkins say this. I, I heard Christopher Hitchens talk about it bef before his passing, um, how they can't prove with 100% certainty that there isn't a God. I mean, like me, you know, they doubt the existence of a creator in an afterlife, but they're not so arrogant or small-minded that they would claim to know with 100% certainty that there's not a God. And that's my viewpoint. I strongly doubt the existence of a creator. Um, I strongly doubt the existence of an afterlife. Um, and I, even more so, I really doubt the idea that any of the world's religions have got it right. I, I doubt the existence of a creator in general. I really doubt the idea that any of the man-made concepts of God are actually true. That any one group, uh, any one religion managed to get it exactly right. I think all religions are man-made. So trying to find out the truth of the universe or the truth of who God is, if he, she, or it exists, through man-made texts which seem to arise out of superstitious uh, primitive traditions is, is nuts. I'll just say it. It's nuts. Um, am I getting indignant? I don't know. Well, once again, obviously, you know, I'm working without a net, no script or anything. I'm just going off the top of my head. Um... So that whole idea that Ken Ham has about science being a natural religion, and he accuses um, you know mainstream science of kind of sneaking a naturalistic religion into the classroom, the way people accuse creationism of trying to sneak Christianity into the classroom, uh, it's just asinine. But enough said about that. Now let me refer to my messy, disorganized notes that I took while watching the debate. Oh yeah, one beauty I almost forgot about is, and he says it without embarrassment, not once, but probably three times, that he literally believes in the Tower of Babel. He literally believes in the story of the Tower of Babel, and that's why man has different languages. And it's funny, because like I said, sometimes he almost sounds like a real scientist. Well, he'll go on using scientific jargon, etc., and he'll have kind of a diagram showing the cycle of life or showing different um, 
animal species, etc. Then he'll have a diagram with like the Tower of Babel or uh, Noah's Ark or something. And he'll talk about the Tower of Babel with the same kind of scientific objectivity that he does, you know, um, species or whatever. And and like I said, the, and Bill Nye brings this up too, that there's a lot of religious people in the world um, who don't believe in young earth creationism. Um, well, obviously, young earth creationism is kind of a um, Judeo-Christian thing specifically. Probably, uh, although I'm not sure um, what the fundamental Jewish belief about the age of the earth is, that... Uh, but it's young earth creationism. We think of that as being a fundamentalist Christian uh, worldview. But there's lots, you know, there's millions and millions of religious people in the world that have spiritual beliefs but embrace mainstream science and don't have these superstitious ideas about the age of the earth or whatever. Um, so I'm sure there's plenty, plenty of Christians out there and uh, like I said earlier, this is problematic too. But at least these person, but at least these people are somewhat reasonable. You know, what we call cafeteria Catholics or cafeteria Christians—people who pick and choose what parts of the Bible they want to believe in. Maybe they think the Tower of Babel smacks of superstition or seems just like a um, a story or myth but obviously they still believe in the resurrection because if you don't believe in the resurrection then the whole house of cards collapses oh my um dog just broke into the room again so be prepared to hear chihuahua grunts in the background but anyway even ken ham is a cafeteria christian because and this was funny um, one thing i will give ken ham and I think in a bizarre way, this was kind of brave of him, or at least good of him, is that, um, you know, he allowed Bill Nye to debate him in his own creation museum. And uh, as far as I know, he didn't restrict what Bill Nye could say. Um, so he kind of, and, and, and at least in my point of view, you know, he allowed himself to be made a fool of in his own creation museum, or at least he was willing to... Um, take on a challenger on his home turf uh even though like i said when the hard questions about things like um hominid fossils and so forth came up he he stayed silent um but he also allowed the moderator to take audience questions some which weren't very flattering or weren't deferential or sympathetic to ken ham's worldview so i thought that was kind of good of him um, but one of the audience member questions, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, was to Ken Ham, and it was, do you believe in the entire Bible, literally? Do you believe that if someone touches pig skin, um, they should be stoned? Or, uh, you know, th there was things like uh, that. I, I forget the... Um, Oh, yeah, and uh, so they said, if, if someone touches pig skin, should they be stoned? And do you think that polygamy is all right? You know what I mean? And Ken Ham tried to make it sound like the Bible condemns polygamy. Um, where, where in the, um, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus in passing seems to mention, you know, kind of as I think it does in Genesis, too, about 
man cleaving to his wife or something like that. But obviously there's lots and lots of examples of polygamy in the Bible. And, and uh, the Bible doesn't always seem to condemn it. Um, you know, there was some biblical patriarchs that seemed to have their hands full and uh, got themselves into trouble by having multiple wives. Um, but also there's a lot of passing mentions of polygamy that don't condemn it and just treat it like it's a normal thing. I think even in the genealogies in Genesis, it it tells you just matter-of-factly, this guy um, took two wives, this and that. Um, and even, you know, there's the story of Abraham um, where his uh, wife Sarah isn't able to conceive at first, so I believe it's Hagar, the kind of maidservant, you know, so um, comes into the picture. And yeah, I mean, there is a lot of kind of domestic issues that arise in some of the biblical stories when people have more than one wife, but the Bible doesn't outlaw it. You know, it it, it has these prohibitions against shellfish, against which type of clothes you can wear, but never condemns or prohibits polygamy. But modern day Christians usually do. but And, and I think the whole Mormon practice of polygamy, which I believe mainstream Mormonism um, left behind a while ago, uh, that was based on the Bible itself. Um, but anyway, and Ken Ham's response to that about things like uh, prohibitions against touching pig skins and polygamy, uh, and, and I think Bill Nye backed the person up and he wanted to know, too, if Ken Ham believed in the Bible, literally. Uh, all Well, obviously he does, but especially Genesis, but does he believe in all of it, literally? And he basically said that, oh, well, some parts, like the Psalms, should simply be taken as poetry. And uh, in fairness, you know, there are things like uh, the Song of Solomon, also known as the, um, the Song of Songs, which people take as a great poetic work. So there are parts of the Bible which are more poetic than others. But uh, Ken Ham basically said there's some parts which can be interpreted as just stories or parables or poetry and some which are meant to be taken as historical accounts. So it appears that even Ken Ham is a kind of cafeteria Christian. And Bill Nye brought up the point that it's pretty damn scary that you have a guy that's basing a scientific worldview that he wants in schools on literal belief in a specific religious text, and he gets to pick and choose which parts are to be taken literally and which parts are not. And I imagine the parts he doesn't quite agree with are the ones that uh, he might tend to want to take as figurative. So very interesting. And another funny point that Bill Nye brought up, and it's kind of along the lines of when I said how he half-jokingly, because it's so preposterous, but he was serious, and and it's a very good point, that in order to make Ken Ham's math work that the world is only 6,000 years old, going on what we know from summer-winter cycles in... um, in ice layers, we would have to have like over our, like 170 uh, winters and summers per year to make Ken Ham's math work out. Um, 
Well, also, he says, if you took all the millions of species in the world, and even if we give Ken Ham a break, and Ken Ham says, oh, well, it wasn't literally two of every animal, it was two of every kind of animal. Even if we did that, once again, to make the math work and have all the millions of different animals we know of come about within 6,000 years or whatever, he said you'd literally be finding like 11 new species a day, animals just popping up all over the place that we didn't know about. And once again, um, just to reiterate, you know, Ken Ham tries to say that mainstream his- historical science, to borrow his term, that definition that um, mainstream science doesn't recognize, that our idea about how old the earth is, our idea of Darwinian evolution, this is all based on faith. This is like a naturalistic religion. And Bill Nye combated this once again by talking about using actual science and fact, how we know what we know about the age of the universe, uh, the age of the earth, things like that, um, with actual observational science. Um, He talked about the Hubble telescope and being able to view stars moving apart, uh, the the expansion of the universe. And um, he talks about Penzias and Wilson and the discovery of that hiss, you know, that um, the actual sound of the actual sound or echo of the Big Bang that was discovered. And he talks about that too, um, the ability good, solid mainstream science to be able to make predictions and then having those predictions come to pass because um, those predictions were based on real um, proven science. And he talks about that, like if there was a Big Bang, um, we should have been able to find some kind of evidence or proof of it. And eventually we did discover that... um, you know, that static that you used to see on the TV in the middle of the night, um, that echo, that primordial hiss left over of the, uh, that echo of the Big Bang. And he also talked about how we use elements like rubidium and strontium to date things. Um, you know, we have these proven me- methods in some cases like carbon dating. There might be some play or sometimes the, um, the results might be somewhat skewed, but we get a good ballpark idea of the age of things using proven scientific methods. Are the methods always 100% accurate? Not always, but usually pretty damn close. There, Like I said, there might be some play in the numbers, but we get a general ballpark idea using sound science and It's a heck of a lot better than trying to figure out the age of the earth using a man-made text, which not only contradicts other man-made religions, which you would expect, but also often contradicts itself. And um, the Judeo-Christian Bible, as I like to say, is basically an anthology cobbled together from the works of various all-too-earthly authors. And we shouldn't be basing science on it. Um, I, I probably shouldn't even have to say that. Oh, and another, ver- um, another example of scientific prediction. I almost hate to use the word prediction because um, 
there'll probably be some dullards out there saying that, oh, prediction, <laughs> you know, that's supernatural. So, you know, science is no better than um, fortune telling. No, when we say prediction, we, may, we mean making logical assumptions based on scientific observation. Um, and that people noticed, scientists noticed that we had things like early amphibians, you know, like these kind of salamander-like creatures. And then we have lizards, and there was kind of this missing link. Um, and I forget the name of the creature, but eventually this fossil was discovered that actually was the missing link between um, these early um, amphibians and lizards. And uh, Bill Nye kept on asking, he said to Ken Ham, based on your scientific worldview, is there anything you can predict that we can discover that will prove, you know, your theories? And basically, Ken Ham is just silent. And um, Bill Nye challenged the audience, and he basically said to the audience, kind of, you know, he's kind of worked up as I am a bit, but he was sincere as I am too, and, and challenged the audience and said, you know, audience, please. If you can give me one example of a fossil being found in the wrong layer, being found in the wrong geological epoch, he said, then we could start to prove your theory. But no, you know, when you look at the geological layers of the Earth, we can see that certain fossils are relegated to certain strata or to certain levels um, because basically evolution. You know, certain creatures lived during certain times. It's not what Ken Ham was suggesting, that man, dinosaurs, and everything else existed all at the same time, which is preposterous. And um, then God came around and punished everyone with the flood, and that's why we have the dinosaur bones. And everything, everything died with the biblical flood except for the animals that uh, Noah saved. And... Uh, one thing that uh, I thought it's sometimes, as much as I like Bill Nye, he missed a lot of opportunities to really sock it to Ken Ham. And like I said earlier, I wish maybe he brought a little, you know, challenged Ken Ham's theology a little bit more. When Ken Ham tries to base science on a literal belief in Genesis, I wish maybe Bill Nye would have tried to poke some holes in that by pointing out the man-made nature of uh the book of Genesis and how it even contradicts itself and has uh, redundant, redundant and contradictory accounts of the same events. But one thing, uh, I mean, I wanted to give Bill Nye a gold star for is when, when uh, Ken Ham is talking about how death and suffering, disease and all this exist because of man's fall in the garden, uh, Bill Nye said, what about fish? D do fish have original sin too? What did fish do? Why do they get sick and die? And I thought that was a really good point. You know, things get sick and die. Well, we can find the reason for this by looking at evolution in mainstream biology. We know that we all basically have some common ancestor and that, and that we're all susceptible to things like bacteria, viruses, and that we all have a kind of expiration date, so to speak, because our bodies weren't designed to last forever. Um, eventually, our cells and our systems start to fail us, and uh, you know. So I thought that was great, though. And of course, Ken Ham had no answer.
Yeah, what did fish do? Did fish sin? Why do they get sick and die? Oh, and another thing, and I thought this was kind of telling about Ken Ham's mentality. One thing that Ken Ham brought up, and I thought it was really juvenile, but I mean, I've been there. I've been there when I was struggling with, with the loss of God. Um, he brought up, I know what it was, I know what it was. Bill Nye was talking about how everything's already solved for Ken Ham. He already has all the answers. The answers for him are in the Bible. And as his um, group or whatever is called, Answers in Genesis. But literally, he already, you know, he's satisfied with the answers. He has the answers in his man-made text, which he believes literally. Um, but Bill Nye said for him, we don't have all the answers yet. And that's what keeps him going as a scientist. He loves discovery. He loves investigation. He loves looking up at the night sky and wondering um, what's out there. And uh, Ken Ham said that he loves discovery and this and that too. And But he said to Bill Nye, and this is what I thought was juvenile, but if there is no God and we're not, and we don't have immortal spirits, um, then what does it all matter? because you're just going to be dead someday. Um, he says he's able to enjoy discovery and scientific inquiry or whatever because he knows that he's um, an immortal spirit, that uh, he's made in God's image, and um, the idea that he's a creation of God means that life has meaning for him. And, uh, and on the contrary, if there were no God and no eternal soul, then nothing would have meaning. And I can remember being a kid, and I have sympath I'm sympathetic to that worldview to some degree, because I'm naturally skeptical, naturally philosophical, and there is a, uh, I know it probably sounds kind of pretentious to refer to yourself as naturally philosophical, but um, I think I am. Uh, I do this podcast, right? But, uh, but I can remember when I was really struggling with doubt, and I started doubting at a young age. I mean, probably literally late elementary school into middle school, um, had some deep, dark moments of existential crisis. Probably in my teen years, a, a lot of us have uh, angst in our teen years. And also, you know, my, my late teens, early 20s, some really rough periods where my reason was really telling me that religion was man-made, that most likely everything I was taught growing up is just yet another set of myths, like the um, dead myths we now, uh, or the dead religions we now call mythologies, the beliefs of the ancient Greeks, the ancient Norse, etc. Um, and my reason was telling me that we don't know if there's a god, that there may not be a god. My my reason was telling me that um, when the brain goes, we probably go too. And nowadays, those things don't really bother me. Maybe I've become a nerd over the years because I've wrestled with these things for so long. But I'm able to enjoy life, enjoy the wonder of life, um, without needing to believe that... Um, I ha that inside me is some eternal essence or that myself will go on forever or believing that some God made me. And in a bizarre way, and this will probably sound very heretical or blasphemous to uh, believers, but 
in a sense, why does just being made by a god make life any more important than if it came about by natural, and there goes my chihuahua, if it came about by natural um, processes some way. Um, if we're just the outcome of evolution, we still are. We might not have eternal souls, but we still have souls in the sense that we think, we reflect on our own existence, we have feelings. Um, but as I think it was a, a friend, a colleague of Richard Dawkins said in an interview I was watching one time, I don't think it was Daniel Dennett, it might have been someone else, but he basically said, you know, we do have souls, um, but they're just composed of neurons in a way. And I remember, this is similar to what I used to tell myself back in my probably late teens, early 20s, where I'd, I'd, I'd tell people, well, I'm sure we have a soul. It's just, does it survive death or not? And, and I still believe that. And soul might be kind of a poetic word for uh, self-awareness generated by the organ that is the, the human brain. But um, I th we, we do have um, a quote-unquote soul. We are, we, we are capable of self-reflection, of empathy, compassion, of thought, of creativity. Um, and to me, and this might might sound weird for people who are just beginning their journey, but um, I think there's almost a type of poetry in being temporary too, and being finite in everything being uh, ephemeral or tra uh, transitory. Um, there's a kind of sad beauty about it that we're here. We our lives have value; they have meaning, but most likely we're just going to vanish back into the ether eventually, you know. We're going to uh, enter a state of dissolution and cease to be. Just kind of a, a brief light, but a light with meaning. Um, I think it's probably a very rare occasion now that the idea of mortality bothers me. It, um, The idea of the death and mortality of the people I care about bothers me a heck of a lot more than the idea of my own mortality. My own mortality, I can honestly say, does not bother, bother me anymore. Um, this might be a bad time to quote Woody Allen, giving, given all the scandal in the uh, news, um, but I remember uh, hearing Larry King quote Woody Allen before, and, and Woody Allen was saying something like, he's not afraid... Uh, to die, he just doesn't want to be there when it happens, or something like that. And that's how I feel. Um, I'm afraid of the pain, or the uh, the fear, the suffering that might accompany death. But I'm not afraid of being dead. I'm not afraid of mortality. But I am afraid of uh, the passing of my loved ones. That's true. Um, but philosophically speaking, the idea of myself being transitory doesn't really bother me. But so I think. Ken Ham, even though it's understandable, was showing a kind of juvenile um, point of view in that moment when he was suggesting that if there is no God, if there is no afterlife, then life has no meaning. Why should we enjoy anything? And you can argue, as many atheists do, in, in a way that might be more impetus to enjoy things because we don't know if we're eternal. We might not be. So kind of suck the marrow out now while you have a chance, you know? Um, that was a weird turn of phrase, but anyway, but, uh, oh, I have another page of notes. What's going on? And I also did some kind of doodle of a werewolf, apparently. Um, 
Uh, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll call it quits there. I think I've been going on long enough. So once again, uh, this has been pretty much ad, ad lib stream of consciousness. Hopefully I didn't bore you. I didn't ramble too much. Hopefully I gave you something to think about. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode and as always, this has been the week in doubt and until next week, Oh, almost forgot the plugs. Uh, <laughs> if you would, Follow the show on Twitter, like the show on Facebook. You can check out the Weekend Out YouTube channel. Um, you can review the show or subscribe through iTunes or subscribe through Podbean. If you want to help donate to the show's upkeep, you can use the PayPal widget on the official Weekend Out Podbean page. And what I mean by upkeep costs, you know, I'm not going to lie to you guys or say that, you know, oh, I sacrifice all this income just to keep the show going for you guys. But I spend like 20 bucks a month on my Podbean subscription. Um... And then just the time and effort. So if you if you want to contribute to the show's upkeep, I mean, the suggested amount is $0.99. Cents. Uh, PayPal takes a portion of the $0.99, cents, if you can believe it. But uh, as always, I leave it up to you guys. Don't want to guilt you because I don't like when other podcasters try to guilt me. Like I'm a big fan of uh, Sam Cedar's The Majority Report, but he always kind of like um, kind of chides the audience about how he doesn't know if he'll be able to keep the show running if you don't uh, continue, continue to contribute or whatever. But and I'm not going to do that to you. <laughs> so, all right. Till next week.